And it made me think about, why has he been so successful and especially successful about young people? And I think it's not what he has done as much as what the right has done. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, it's election season. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk to you about some language around this season. And um, you have a couple of terms that are actually in the book. These are common enough and pervasive enough that they merit entry in the book. One of them is the word Democrat versus Democratic. If you're a member of the Democrat Party or the Democratic Party, which is it? Well, of course, it's the Democratic Party. But uh, sometime in the 1940s, conservative Republican politicians began to refer to it as the Democrat Party. And it's not that nobody had ever put those two words together before, but this was a conscious choice, uh, and it was meant to be denigrating. And there's a lot of argument about exactly what that's supposed to mean, like um, the Democratic Party is not truly democratic or just, you know, it, it's sort of like people who insist on calling people a term that they do not appreciate, and it's it's a deliberate insult. The problem with it is that it's pretty dumb. I don't think anybody notices this except for politicians and a few journalists. Um, <laughs> when you interview a conservative senator or representative, and they will almost always refer to the opposition as the Democrat Party. Uh, this is particularly characteristic of Southern uh, Republicans, but you find it all over the place. The equivalent would be, of course, if we referred to the Republic Party. But if you're a member of the Republican Party, you're not a republic. Yeah. They call people who are members of the Democratic Party Democrats. So this is, I think, trying to dig in to dig into some sense of, oh, those Democrats are annoying and they're part of the Democrat Party. I think I am trying to figure out what the possible slur is here. Yeah, that's right. And I was reading up on this and people kept referring to the slur and so on. It's a pretty weak slur. <laughs> I don't think most <laughs> people pay any attention to it. I think it's just a really silly, stupid game that these guys play that makes them feel a little bit better somehow to not use the proper name of their opposition. Um, and I said so in the book, and I got uh, an angry email saying, you know, I shouldn't let my politics influence uh, sort of thing. And I thought, hmm, this book is a place for me to express my opinions. <laughs> you know, why don't you write your own? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think regardless of your political stripe, trying to deliberately misuse the proper name of the party is a childish and kind of foolish looking thing. And we can judge that regardless of our political stripe. Right. On the other hand, if somebody does says that, I don't feel wounded to the heart. I feel, oh, you dope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, for those of us who are tuned into it, it just seems just that. Well, that's sort of childish and silly. Um, let's move on to the next thing. Okay. You have one other entry that I could think off the top of my head that's in the book that's related to the election season, and that is 
we could talk on and on about the meaning of the word electoral, but it's electoral, not electoral. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to form an adjective and AL and IAL occur in different words. It just happens to be electoral. Um, but because that editorial <laughs> is an example of the IAL. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just uh, somebody, people get their wires crossed. And the word electoral doesn't come up that often if you're just an ordinary citizen. I swear, I think most of the general public isn't even aware that the electoral college exists, let alone understanding how it works. So that is the main context in which the word electoral gets used other than, um, well, I don't know. (laughs) You really don't hear it that much. Well, maybe once every four years when we're huddled around, uh, it used to be uh, one of the three big networks. Now it's CNN or something like that. And we're watching the results pour in, and we see that, uh, you know, such and such state, you know, Illinois has flipped to one candidate or the other, and they announce how many electoral votes that is, and they have the tally on the board. The way it's done is pretty abstract, but that's about the only time that we all really get tuned in to what the significance is of the Electoral College. Yeah, you think we all would have... Uh, learned how to think about the Electoral College after Bush v. Gore. Mm, yeah. But no, that didn't seem to really penetrate. The point is that uh, you win the popular vote if you win more than 50% of the vote of the people in the United States. That does not mean that you have won the presidential election. You have to flip enough electoral votes, enough states that have electoral votes to swing it in your favor. Yeah, and even apart from the Electoral College, it's worth noting that, uh, as Democrats often point out, in the last, um, well, the second election of Obama's first term, uh, the majority of voters taken as a whole voted Democratic. But the elections resulted because of gerrymandering and, and districting and the way that states are set up so that very low population states uh, still have two senators and so on. A lot of these uh, strange ins and outs that uh, Republicans won big in an election where they did not have this huge majority that you would have thought for the results. Yes. And uh, when a president wins the electoral college by a landslide, That means that uh, most of the states swung in the favor of that candidate, but it can often mean, actually, and maybe even usually does mean, that the majority of people who voted did not vote for that particular candidate. They were voting for the other one or some third party or, or abstaining or something like that. Well, we also have this obsession with who won each primary with the Democrats because they allot delegates to the convention proportionately. Um, if one candidate comes out with uh, 51% and the other one with uh, 48 or something, there never seems to add up to 100. But you say, well, the first one won, but they can wind up actually evenly splitting the delegates. People are obsessed with popularity contests. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get down to the nitty gritty of the current election or something that comes up when we all get tuned into election cycles is the particular language that makes up the race. And these are maybe not general enough to discuss in your book on common errors, but they're worth being tuned into anyway. 
Uh, I have one here that's um, candidates using the term we yes. to talk about themselves. <laughs> yeah, what's the story there? Yeah, if you listen to the speeches and interviews of almost any presidential candidate, and this is true, are really down the line. Um, many politicians, I would say the majority, refer to their campaigns as we. And I think the point is to say, I'm not uh, just all out here by myself. I've got lots of support. I have an organization that backs me. There's a party on my side. Um, the voters that like me are part of a great movement, uh, you know, and at the same time, I think bringing in the back of the minds of some of these people is their teachers telling them, like, don't use I, I, I all the time. Don't refer to yourself uh, a lot in your writing. And, um, of course, I'm skeptical about that, too. There are plenty of kinds of writing where it's very appropriate to use the first person. But um, I can think of uh, some other instances where the the we gets used that are interesting. One is um, scientists often write articles jointly, and sometimes there'll be a long list of authors. And then, of course, they refer to their work with the word we. We began our investigation, so which makes perfect sense because they are plural. Most people know also about the royal we, in which the kings and queens of England supposedly referred to themselves in the plural. And there are sometimes um, people mock politicians who are doing the same thing as if they were assuming the rights of the royal we. I think there may be a little bit of that, but I don't think that's the main motivation. Then there's a really peculiar one in which um, there is a biblical divine we. And occasionally you'll find um, people having God think of himself as a we. This comes from Genesis 1.26 and another verse later, 3.22. So Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. As it's such a dramatic statement that most people just don't even notice that God refers to himself as us. And Genesis 3.22 says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. So there's been a debate for a long time over what this plural is. And, of course, the immediate thing that most beginning students who think they know a little bit about the language say, well, this must be like the royal we. It's really a singular the problem with that is it's the only time it occurs in the Bible is in this particular passage in the creation story. Uh, it's just not something that is traditional. And not only that, but it flies in the face of traditional Jewish monotheism, where the singularity of God is a central tenet of faith. In fact, the first commandment. So um, there's a real problem to be solved there. And there have been various attempts to try to figure it out. One is that this is uh, God referring to himself and the angels. That's kind of dubious. There's nothing said about the angels taking part in creation as such. Now, I don't have my theology down, Pat, but do angels exist at creation? I, I thought maybe they were uh, came along later. Well, this is much too complicated to go in here now, but there is an angel placed at the guarding the entrance to Eden after Adam and Eve were driven out. Uh So they had to have been around at some point. Um, Most modern uh, biblical scholarship 
that it's not fundamentalists say that uh, angels were really a later development, perhaps influenced by Persian religion during uh, the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and then they get put back into the story, which was set much earlier than it was written down. That, that's a theory. But it really doesn't explain the, the plural. Uh, I don't think that's got a lot of grounds to it. Um, and Christians um, who were working in, in a very early period with the text, of course, said, aha, we, there are three persons in one. Now, the Trinity is right there in the Bible. <laughs> and um, that's, again, is just doesn't work because it's the only place where this occurs. And there are so many other places in which the singularity of God is, is put. So anyway, that's a little bit of a, a sidetrack. Could it have been a slip of the tongue by some polytheistic tradition? Well, that's, of course, another theory in that there is evidence that when Hebrews were commanded not to worship any god before God, that didn't mean that there weren't any other gods. It was just not saying there is only one god uh, like Islam does, but um, you're only supposed to worship this particular one. He's your god. But then why would God refer to himself and these other gods as we? That That's also troubling. So it's, it's a mystery. Well, we could puzzle over that one. But when candidates use the we, I take it anyway, not to be any kind of royal we. Or um, I'm definitely not thinking of any kind of biblical reference. But I am imagining that they are considering themselves as and not themselves, but as a movement and elevating the status of their campaign to an entire movement that expresses the wishes and desires of a very large group of people. Yeah, and the more fringy uh, and uh, isolated they are, the more likely they are to say we. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there is one candidate this year who has not used we all that much. Ah, uh, yes, we all know him, Donald Trump. He uses I. He uses I constantly, and it's all about him. He gets asked, who are your main uh, military advisors? And he says, of course, I listen to myself a lot. He's incredibly uh, egotistical, of course, and has no shame whatsoever in using the I. It's kind of refreshing in a horrible kind of way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of him, now he was a reality television star All at right. one point in his career, and he was referred to as the Donald. Yeah. I remember that phenomenon of the Donald. Uh, <laughs> but these days... When he's running for president, he's most likely to be tagged with his last name, Trump. Yeah, well, and he also tagged himself. Remember, Trump Towers, going way back in his uh, building career, and the Trump brand and so on. He's made a big thing out of his last name. And um, I have heard comedians refer to the Donald, and it's a way of denigrating. But it's, it's again, another one of those uh, playing around with language that isn't all that witty or Striking. Uh, in fact, it's very traditional to refer to candidates by their last name. And uh, in uh, most cases, traditionally, the first name is not as well remembered as the last name. But we have his opposition on the Democratic side, Hillary and Bernie. And they use that themselves in their own campaign literature. Uh, and it's meant to make them more personal and somebody you could relate to. Um, Trump as an overblown windbag is, uh, you know, 
always pushing himself ahead. Hillary and Bernie want to be your friends. Well, Hillary needs that because <laughs> she's not. She's not Clinton. Right. Yeah. If she becomes the nominee, she's not going to be the first Clinton running for president. Right. Right. And so that just doesn't work. Now, there has been a tradition um, in a lot of own uh, businesses and school and, and a lot of places where men will be addressed by their last name and women will be referred to by their first name. Um, Susie, will you go get Mr. Brown a cup of coffee? That kind of thing. And so it can be seen as prejudicial. In this case, I don't think it is. For those both those reasons, uh, Hillary has to distinguish herself from Bill and Bernie is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a tradition of well identifying presidents in different ways for their names. So sometimes there's initialisms that get attached to them, or sometimes there's little nicknames that get attached to them. Right. Uh, you know, John F. Kennedy was Jack Kennedy to a lot of people. Right. But more importantly, especially beloved by headline writers, JFK. JFK. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was also some echo of FDR. Mm-hmm in there um, because FDR came to have such a big meaning and for people who were sympathetic to Roosevelt's policies, um, FDR, I suppose you could say FDR sort of stood for federal too. Oh, um, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, both of those are considered pretty uh, dignified abbreviations. But when uh, the younger Bush gets referred to just as W, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's an insult. Sure. Right. Yeah. And it's to distinguish him from his father, George H.W., who had two middle names, right? Right. Right. Herbert Walker. But just the W tells you that it's the second Bush. Yeah. The diminutive. Right. But another abbreviation, which was really backed up by the candidate himself, was Eisenhower being referred to as Ike. Ike is uh, traditionally an abbreviation of Isaac or a casual form of Isaac and and more a Jewish name than a German one. Eisenhower was not Jewish, of course. So that was a case where it was thought to make him more likable. And you get the slogan, I like Ike. It could have been, I like Dwight, but somehow that doesn't roll off the tongue so well. (laughs) Sure. Well, I like Ike was one of the iconic campaign slogans. And that was a song, too. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we'll link to the uh, YouTube of one of the I Like Ike campaign commercials, which is amusing to this day. And while we're on the subject of traditional Jewish first names being used of a president, there's good old Honest Abe. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It used to be much more common for men in the 19th century and earlier to be named after um, Old Testament biblical names like Abraham. Yeah. Speaking of the friendly ones, we get Teddy for uh, there's only one Teddy. (laughs) That was uh, the first president, Roosevelt, distant cousin, I guess, of FDR. And uh, let me think. I can't think of any more off the top of my head. Are you? No. Well, that's enough for now, but I want to talk more about the ins and outs of campaigning. Um, We get tuned in these days to uh, a lot of news programs and um, a lot of attention to how the media handles the campaigns. And um, one of the things we notice is the interview style. Candidates are always complaining about the gotcha question. The gotcha question is, a, I think, in my lifetime coined phrase, right? 
Right. I haven't looked it up, but it's certainly gotten more use recently. And the gotcha question is self-defined, of course, by the person who is being questioned. So it's a question that they don't want to answer. A classic example that's used of the question, improper sort of question at court, is when did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> Which assumes the answer. That would be a gotcha question, but um, they have more in mind. Um, now, you claim to be this honest, upright citizens, but I, I, we just discovered by going through some back channels that uh, when you were in 10th grade, you plagiarized your history term paper. And to me, that's a gotcha question. If it's something that is going to have some political weight, um, but really rationally doesn't have anything to do with the party, there's often these days, there's this thing about we need to have somebody with sound character. And when you look back at our, our great presidents, you know, Jefferson, of course, been challenged quite rightly for his dealings with his slaves and having one of them as a mistress with children and so on. And, uh, of course, uh, Jack Kennedy, notorious womanizer, as the old term used to be. That's a sexist term for you. Um, anyway, the idea that a great president must also be of the utmost moral rectitude in private matters has gotten wildly exaggerated. And of course, the peak of this was the impeachment of Clinton, Bill Clinton, uh, for lying about oral sex with an intern and the three congressional leaders that were leading that charge have all been shown to have committed various to have acted in ways sexually that did not show particular moral rectitude either i've noticed a bit of absence of just how front and center dennis hastert was in that in his recent exposure as a pedophile a serial pedophile but I've noticed a distinct lack of just head-on, front and center, slamming him over the head over that. But even more to the point for the presidential campaign, Trump has gotten all the support from Christian conservatives in many places, uh, despite his really raunchy past as regards women. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but it's all public record, and he's pretty unashamed about it. So he may have broken the Bill Clinton curse on that particular subject. Well, these are all about gotcha questions. But from the point of view of the interviewer, they might call it a pivot, right? Well, the answer to their gotcha question could be a pivot. And this is a term that's been, it's pretty much an inside, what they call inside baseball, something in journalism. And now political consultants use it as well. Um, you get asked, um, so what is your stand on on raising taxes? And the person will answer by saying, of course, I'm for the American people and we need a sound economic policy and we need to grow the economy and so on. OK, what happened there is the, the person didn't answer the question at all. And occasionally we've had this spectacle in this campaign of journalists on TV actually plowing ahead and saying, but that's not what I asked. And all of them do this. And sometimes uh, Trump's pivots are, are so head spinning that they just take off in a totally different direction. 
politicians do not want to be put into a corner to answer questions that might politically embarrass them. And of course, it's the job of the journalist to try to get their real opinions out there. But there are some opinions like, suppose you're campaigning in Iowa and you get asked about, well, do you support ethanol? Well, ethanol is not particularly good for the environment. It causes a lot more corn to be grown, which is bad itself for the economy. It raises the price of corn for poor people. Tortillas got too expensive in Mexico. It had all sorts of bad effects. And yet, to win the Iowa caucus, you had to come out in support of ethanol. There's a wonderful episode in the West Wing where this whole subject is explored at great length. But interestingly, this year, there was not that kowtowing to the ethanol interests in Iowa by the candidates as much. They seem to have lost a bit of their grip. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the pivot is a kind of a polite way of just saying, you know, candidates do not answer questions a lot of the time. They just answer a question that they would like to have been asked. So they might call it a pivot. We might call it a dodge. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, another point that gets raised, speaking of the media and how the media handles the campaign, we get really tuned into the word issues versus the word horse race. And horse race is one of those other ones that I don't remember in my very young days, but it certainly has been something that we focus on now is all they're covering is the horse race. Right. And the endless polling. I mean, there has been more and more doubt about whether political polls really have a lot of value. The percentage of people who actually answer their phones and are willing to take a survey is getting very, very small. And the number of young people in particular who even answer any calls from their mom and dad (laughs) is getting very small. And uh, the hostility to being interviewed is is quite high. There's a lot of evidence that the polling techniques are really falling apart, and it's it's getting very difficult now to come up with accurate figures. And yet, the news is always referring to the latest polls, and so do the candidates. Uh, Sometimes Trump, when he gives a political speech, will not refer to a single issue, but talk only about how popular he is and what polls make him look good, which is a really odd kind of thing to do. And yet the perception of Trump is that, uh, oh, he's the candidate who just speaks off the cuff about what he's thinking. And he's an outsider because he just speaks so off the cuff. He's not formulative like these other candidates, and he would bash Marco Rubio over his uh, canned speeches and so on. Yeah, I noticed that when he gave his foreign policy speech, he used a teleprompter, which he had denigrated other people for doing. But yeah, then, of course, the critics who look at news coverage say, you, as you said, you're only reporting the horse race and not the issues. That's kind of interesting in itself. What are the issues? Who defines what the issues are? Well, in this context, it seems to be the things that have been written about in the news and the things that politicians choose to talk about in their speeches. But that's still a passive way of gathering information about candidates to be elected. It's very rare that a journalist does some independent research and says, well, um, okay, here's something that's not getting a lot of coverage. Um, but what do you think we should do about the financial crisis in Puerto Rico? 
mm-hmm. you know, and it'd be interesting to know. That's something that no person is going to want to talk about because it's clear that the Congress has discriminated against Puerto Rico and not allowing them the same right to reorganization of their finances that the states in the United States have, although it's an American possession. And um, it's a catastrophe that it's looming. It's going to affect Wall Street. It has enormous importance, but there's no way to talk about it that will benefit a politician. Nobody in Puerto Rico gets to vote for the president, so they certainly don't get in. Um, the people who are wanting to get the support of big business don't like it because big business is terrified what's going to happen if the economy collapses. And liberals don't want to be caught saying, well, we're going to have to spend a lot of money for these foreigners who speak Spanish. That's how it's going to be viewed. They're they're not foreigners, but uh, they do speak Spanish. And people just forget all about Puerto Rico as a functioning part of the United States. It's a messy issue, but it would be interesting to know. And it's fascinating to me, the questions that don't get asked. Often, um, journalists obsess about certain terms and ideas have been put forward by politicians and they don't broaden the discourse. I've been waiting and waiting for somebody who's talking to Trump the next time he says, we're going to build this wall to say, uh, have you read about these incredible tunnels that the Mexicans know how to dig that go right underneath any wall you might build? What would you do about that? seems to me that would be a really good question. Mm-hmm. But although those two stories are in the news, you know, fighting drug trafficking on the one hand, tunnels, and Trump and his wall, they fit together very nicely, but I haven't heard anybody doing it. Well, and then there's uh, somebody on the BBC I was told to me later, I recently was saying, well, show me a 10-foot wall and I'll show you a 12-foot ladder. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, the wall will be defeated just like other measures. So, uh, but just to get back to the horse race and the polling question, there are some more sophisticated analyses of polling and polling data that get done by Nate Silver at 538.com. Yes. And if you look into the work that, uh, well, it's not just Nate Silver now. He's got a whole group of statisticians working on this. They're not just looking at raw numbers from polls. They're looking at what these polls have historically indicated. And uh, it could well be that a poll shows that in raw numbers, this candidate's doing really well. When in fact, if you look at just the poll itself, uh, that's it got a lot of bad indicators in it. Right. And Nate Silver has done wonderful work, of course, and got very, very famous in his work in the New York Times when he was there. However, I think things have changed and we're going to see even Nate Silver and his crew uh, having more and more problems. Uh, the famous uh, slogan in computing G.I.G.O. garbage in, garbage out. Yes, it's a very, very tricky thing that polling and seems like it's more and more of a phenomenon that um certain races are ending up with surprising results after the election is actually held. I don't know when I've heard so many commentators on the radio saying, um, you know, two weeks ago, all of us were predicting this was the end of Trump's campaign or, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, Hillary had this one really cinched. And now what seemed impossible has suddenly become the reality. Um, it's not only the polling that's gotten more and more baffling, but 
the commentators who pride themselves on understanding things at a deeper level are being continually surprised and uh, having their preconceptions upended by this election. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if it helps to push us a little farther away from the horse race and more into the issues, I'd be in favor of that myself. Yeah, I don't see a lot of signs of it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of issues, though, there's a couple of them, a couple of terms that a good journalist could take on and help explain to us uh, in ways that have not, I think, been adequately done. One of them is the word socialism. This word gets attached to all kinds of people who I wouldn't call socialists. Well, I'm, I actually have a whole page on my website dedicated to socialism and communism as terminology and, and their history and evolution, especially in the 19th century. Well, let's make a link to that, but I don't want to uh, go into all the details of it. But for political purposes in the United States, there has been a traditional tendency to lump socialism and communism together and for communism to mean Stalinist dictatorship. Now, people on the left uh, who consider themselves Marxists do not accept that blurring together at all, but they make up such a small portion of American population and, and its political discourse that uh, their concerns are not paid any attention to. And there was... Uh, a way in the, especially in the 40s and 50s, of uh, referring to anything you didn't like as communist. Um, and uh, socialist was seen as being more or less interchangeable. From the Marxist point of view, of course, communism is an advanced stage of socialism, or it's the precursor to communism, or so on. There are all kinds of ways of looking at it. And then, of course, we use it commonly in in relation to the Nordic countries, like Sweden and Denmark. You have a strong centralized government, high tax rates, and a very significant safety net. Um, so that had a, less of a, a negative impact. But outside of the circles where people think about these things all the time, that kind of distinction is not made. And the whole notion that there's something called democratic socialism seems like an oxymoron in American politics. So an older generation who are approaching this election must be astonished to see that a candidate who says he's a socialist has succeeded in running for president and getting a whole lot of votes when that term was so anathema in American politics. In fact, if you were uh, had any serious chance of, of getting into office, you would not allow yourself to be labeled a socialist. Bernie Sanders does that right up front. And it made me think about, well, why has he been so successful and especially successful about young people? And I think it's not what he has done as much as what the right has done. Um, conservative Republicans have for decades referred to all kinds of measures which are even mildly government oriented as being socialist so that, um, let's say, Social Security uh, lends itself because it has the word social right in in front of it as being socialist, welfare, um, environmental regulation, um, you name it, almost any of the causes that call for the government to get involved in helping to benefit citizens by uh, reining in business would be referred to as socialist. Now, it turns out that a lot of the organizations and laws and policies that have been labeled socialist by the conservatives are actually pretty popular. 
And the famous example, of course, that gets talked about all the time is the Tea Party. You know, get the government off my back and don't let them take my Social Security. Or, um, <laughs> down with Obamacare, um, but I want my Medicare. Right, right. So, yeah. But if you're young and uh, the monolithic Soviet Union uh, doesn't exist anymore, the Korean uh, example, I mean, his North Korean example is so absurd and claiming to be Marxist. It's just like any other dictatorship, totalitarian. And China, which is sort of a runaway state capitalism, people keep talking, we have to be more like China. We have to compete with them and so on economically rather than conquering them. This is uh, made for a very interesting atmosphere in which young people would encounter socialism as something that maybe describes things that they like. They would like more environmental regulation. They would like to have more regulation on the banks and so on. And if that's socialism, well, that sounds pretty good. So uh, if it hadn't been for all those decades of misusing the term socialism to describe rather benign social policies, I don't think Bernie Sanders would have had as much success as he has. That's exactly the point. And so, well, President Obama was a socialist, right? Right. That's what they say. Uh, President Clinton's a socialist. We've elected socialists lots of times. There's nothing strange about this Bernie Sanders character. <laughs> yeah. The whole idea of an international left-wing conspiracy to take over the world, which dominated American discourse for decades, is just gone. And for young people, it doesn't even enter into their minds. All right. Well, let's step back a little further uh, from the word socialist and uh, the development of socialism to another word, which is an interesting one to me, progressive. Now, wasn't Theodore Roosevelt a progressive? Yeah, we had a progressive party in the United States for a while. And it's an interesting term in that uh, progress. Of course, every politician wants to move forward. We have to get this country moving forward again, which means absolutely zero. The only way you can not move forward politically is to say, I like things as they are and we should maintain them exactly this way. And if that's what you like so much, you're probably not going to run for office. <laughs> you don't want to change anything. So the people who want to, say, do away with affirmative action will say we need to move forward on that. And people who want more affirmative action say we have to move forward on that. People who want to uh, turn the national parks over to the logging industry say we've got to move forward, etc. Every possible position is progressive in that sense. But there's a tradition of associating progressivism with leftist politics. And it's often a way of avoiding labels like socialist, communist, etc. And it's thought to be, I think, milder. And it's become hugely revived in recent uh, years. And I don't think more than 10 years ago before it didn't used to be used a lot. Uh, but now being a progressive means I'm not only a Democrat, but I'm a kind of Democrat that is opposed to big business dominating a politics and want uh, more access to the vote, less discrimination and so on, a whole thing, uh, which used to be described as leftist, but progressive is a more neutral term. But there's another problem with progressive for me in that it describes uh, as if there were a goal. 
So we're making progress. Okay, how do we know when we've gotten to where we're progressing to? And I think there was in the back of the mind of some of the early users of this term, well, what the end goal is really socialism. But the country's not ready for it yet. And so we're going to just talk about politics which are progressive. And so if you are in favor of certain policies that, say, Soviet Russia backed, you could be labeled you could label yourself a progressive because we're part of the way there. That kind of has gotten lost. And I think uh, progressive has pretty much got emptied of its meaning, except for these associations. You just look at the kind of people who are using it and they say, yeah, OK, that is the more democratic part of the Democratic Party, I would say. But also anarchists and all kinds of um, extremists uh, who are opposed to right-wing policies describe themselves as progressives, too. It's People talk about slippery terms. This is, I don't think slippery is really an appropriate word, but vague, foggy notion. It fogs up the discourse because it, it really doesn't nail down where on the spectrum you go. And it, its very essence is all about movement and indefinability. Well, it's one of those phrases that sounds good, so I'll use it. Yeah, who can be against progress, right? Yes, so uh, I'm progressive, and it uh, sounds great, and uh, it doesn't really have a meaning beyond just this sort of sense that it's a good thing to be. <laughs> it's also replaced liberal. Yes, yes. Liberal has been through a long evolution. If you look up its history, you find that it, it had a, a very different meaning in its origins. Here's a definition. Political or social philosophy advocating the freedom of the individual, parliamentary systems of government, nonviolent modification of political, social, or economic institutions to assure unrestricted development in all spheres of human endeavor and governmental guarantees of individual rights and civil liberties. It's something that both Democrats and Republicans and traditional politicians traditionally aspired to, but the word liberal went through a, a radical reformulation. And what happened is that it became a term of opprobrium as used by the right. So uh, Republicans would refer to uh, failed liberal policies, of course. And uh, the Democrats were very shy of standing up for the term liberalism. They really, they didn't defend themselves at all. They just pretty much caved. And that's been the history of the modern Democratic Party up until Bernie Sanders came along, is uh, just uh, trying to uh, sneak around this term and not standing up and saying, yes, I'm a liberal and I'm proud of it and here's the record of liberalism and this is what it means. And nobody was saying that. And of course, if Bernie doesn't use the term either, but it got sort of emptied out of its traditional as I've seen some conservatives uh, of the more thoughtful sort uh, trying to revive that term of traditional liberalism, but I don't think that is going anywhere. I, I remember an interview uh, I heard on NPR with some of the voiceover artists who do campaign ads, who get a lot of work during election season, obviously. And one of them was asked by the reporter, what is your favorite word to say? And his response was, liberal. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> with this deep <laughs> demonic voice as if it was coming from Satan or something, you know. He obviously was called on to inject that a lot in the campaign ads he was recording. I think politically he himself identified as a, a liberal. I think they got to that part of the interview too, but it, it just was the idea of being able to say something so satanic and horrible the worst possible voice right yeah paul we've been talking about a lot of the terms around this election season and that makes me think of all kinds of other things that we can discuss to do with the left and the right and where we're at with those terms and uh what about this term politically correct it's got the word political right in it let's talk about that another time okay all right thanks paul you're welcome That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.